for people that haven't been here for Taisho before, it's okay to shift occasionally your posture or change posture, um, but do your best to maintain an upright posture. So Zen practice requires us to engage both intellectually but also intuitively. And most of us, of course, operate uh, most of the time from our intellects. And so Sashin practice is about relaxing the intellect. Relaxing the intellect because it's usually kind of like a, a muscle that's become overworked and then uh, kind of in spasm. It needs to be worked to be released um, so this is why it's so important to adhere to the guidelines of Sashin of keeping the eyes down not engaging in discursive thinking noticing those times when we get lost in the usual patterns thought. Most of us are in an uphill battle against our thought thinking processes. That's why Sashin is necessary to overcome that momentum. Daily practice is sort of like maintenance. It kind of takes the edge off, so to speak. But Sashin practice is meant to really take us upstream against our habit forces, really to um, work single-mindedly against the habit of going to the future or to the past. So you could say that Sashin practice really is about hard work. It's also about patience. It's also about forgiveness. Every time we lose the practice, we just go right back to it. So for Taisho today and tomorrow, we're going to look at a koan. And we'll just go for a certain period of time today and then... When we run out of time, we'll pick it up tomorrow. So this is um, <coughs> a very famous koan. And before I get into it, just to say a word about koans. Koans are a primary teaching method in our lineage, the lineage of Zen that we've inherited here. And koans are one of three kinds of major practices in Zen, the other two being breath work and shikantaza, or just sitting. And koans are these stories usually taken from the classical period of Zen in Tang Dynasty China and are the sayings and doings of the masters. Some come from Buddhist, earlier Buddhist 
stories. But for the most part, they come from these incredibly enlightened teachers and have been passed down. And each koan is taken in as a practice while we do zazen. And they're meant to point out this very truth that is always present but difficult to see. And because it's difficult to see, the koans seem impenetrable. They seem sometimes, to be honest, quite crazy. Uh, but they're not. They're not. There's a deep wisdom in each one. And so the student's job is to wrestle with it, to take it in and see um, if that truth can become apparent. Not in an intellectual way. It's not about intellectual knowledge, but it's really about uh, that intuition that I spoke about just a few minutes ago. So this is case number two of the Mulan Khan, the gateless gate. Uh, this comes after the first koan, which is some of you are working on, which is Mu. When, when students work on a first koan, it's usually a Dharmakaya koan, meaning a koan to help one break through to this other side of reality. And then after that, uh, subsequent koans are used to clarify that experience and to uh, round out the student's understanding of, of really, of reality. So this is the second case, and it's a very important case. It's also a very difficult one. Hakwin called this a nanto koan. A nanto means difficult to pass. And it's also probably one of the longest ones. So, it's called Hyakujo and a Fox. So I'm going to read the case, and I'll read the commentary in verse. Muman, the compiler of, of these cases, um, always appended a, a verse and a commentary to each case, giving his two cents, basically. The case. Whenever Hyakujo delivered a Taisho, which is a Dharma talk, a certain old man was always there listening to it together with the monks. When they, when they left the hall, he did also. One day, however, he remained behind, and Hyakujo said to him, Who are you? The old man replied, I'm not a human being. In the far distant past, in the time of Kashapa Buddha, I was the head of this monastery. On one occasion, a certain monk asked me whether an enlightened person falls under the chain of cause and effect. And I answered that he could not fall under the chain of cause and effect. Because of that answer, I have for 500 lives been reborn as a fox. 
I now beg you to release me from this fox body by saying a turning word. Uh, turning word, by the way, is a te- you know teaching. Give me something. <laughs> Say a turning word on my behalf. Then he asked Hyakujo, can the enlightened person fall under the chain of cause and effect or not? Hyakujo answered, he does not ignore the law of causation. The old man immediately awakened and making his bowels, he said, I am now released from rebirth as a fox and my body will be found on the other side of this mountain. I wish to make a request of you. Please bury me as a dead monk. Hyakujo had his head monk strike the clappers and inform the monks that after the midday meal, there would be a funeral service for a dead monk. The monks thought, this is odd, since we're all in good health, and there was no sick monk in the infirmary. And then they wondered what the reason could be for this order. After they had eaten, Hyakujo led them to the foot of a rock on the far side of the mountain, and with his staff poked out the dead body of a fox, and and they had it cremated. In the evening, Hyakujo ascended the rostrum in the hall and told the monks the whole story. Obaku, who was one of his students, thereupon asked the following question. This old man made a mistake in his answer and suffered rebirth as a fox for 500 lives, you say. But suppose every time that he had answered, he had not made a mistake. What would he have he become? Hyakujo replied, holding his stick, just come closer and I'll tell you. Obaku then went up to Hyakujo and slapped him. Hyakujo, clapping his hands and laughing, exclaimed, I thought that the barbarian's beard is red, but I see that you are a barbarian with a red beard. And that's the end of the case. So we'll get to that last part probably tomorrow with Obaku, his senior student there. Today we'll we'll focus mainly on the beginning portion of the case up to the point where they found the dead fox. The commentary. This is Master Muman's commentary. Not falling into the law of cause and effect, why was he turned into a fox? Saying, not ignoring the law of cause and effect, why was he released from a fox body? If in regard to this you have the Buddha eye to see into this, you'll know that the former head of the monastery did enjoy his 500 lives as a fox. And the verse, not falling, not ignoring, two faces, but one die, as in dice, Not ignoring, not falling, hundreds and thousands of regrets. Okay. 
So now that you're thoroughly confused, <laughs> let's get into it. So it's, I think it's important for us when we talk about these old stories and these old folks to have a context of who they were, where this stuff comes from. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about Hyakujo, the, the abbot of this monastery. His Chinese name, Hyakujo is a Japanized version of his name. His Chinese name is Bai Chang. And Bai Chang's dates were from 720 to 814. So that gives you a sense of what we're talking about in terms of time. 720 to 814. And Pai Chong, he was credited with really uh, instituting um, work practice, samu as we call it. Everybody just got done doing an hour or so of work. And Pai Chong was um, the teacher who really emphasized the importance of work and instituted the monastic regulations. Because up to that point, monks in China, even Zen monks, uh, mainly were supported through begging. And I'm sure that there's a political component to this, that the state had a huge control over um, religious life. And so Hyakujo insisting that the monks work and farm and create communities that were self-sustainable was not only practical but also political, like Bodhidharma, who uh, turned away from the emperor, turned away from the institutionalization of, of religion, saying, no, we're not going down that road. It's dangerous. When the, when the government gets involved in, in religious practice. So Hyakujo, or Pai Chang, um, in doing this, he really um, uh, set the stage for the rest of, uh, up until today, really, and how we do practice. He was actually so um, firm on this that he worked until, uh, really, till the day he died. He died at the age of 94. And there's an old story about him. I'm not sure if I can find it in here, but it basically, he would go out every day with his tools into the fields, and he would farm just like all the other monks, even as an old man. And the other monks felt sorry for him. And we said, you know, we should really, we should really uh, not let the teacher go out and do this. It's, he's an old guy. Like. And so they hid his tools somewhere so he couldn't find them. Um, and Yakujo stopped working but he also stopped eating. And he didn't eat for several days, knowing, uh, telling his monks, well, I don't, I'm not working. 
And that's where the phrase comes from, a day of no working is a day of no eating in Zen practice. Very independent spirit. So, Hyakujo was a disciple of a very famous master, Matsu, who really had so many prolific Dharma errors. And I want to read a dialogue when he was still a student of Matsu. I'll use his Chinese name again. Sorry for the confusion about going back and forth. I was trained hearing the Japanese names, and now I'm trying to get back to the Chinese names. But I, one thing is I don't know if I'm pronouncing the Chinese names quite right. Um, but we'll give it a try. So this is a little dialogue. One day, Bai Zhang accompanied Matsu on a walk. Remember, Bai, Bai, uh, Pai, Pai Zhang is uh, a student of Matsu. And so this is before he's a teacher. And a flock of wild ducks flew overhead. Matsu said, what's that? Pai Chang said, wild ducks. Matsu said, where'd they go? Pai Chang said, they flew away. Matsu then, twisting Pai Chang's nose so hard that he cried out. Matsu said, so you say they've flown away, huh? Upon hearing these words, Pai Chang attained enlightenment. Returning to the attendance room, Pai Chang cried loudly. One of the other attendants asked Pai Chang, Are you homesick? Pai Chang said, No. And the attendant said, Did someone curse at you? Pai Chang said, No. The attendant said, Well, then why are you crying? Pai Chang said, Master Ma twisted my nose so hard that the pain was unbearable. The attendant said, What did you do that offended him? Pai Chang said, why don't you go ask him? The attendant went to Matsu and said, what did, uh, what did he do to offend you? He's in the room crying, please tell me. The great teacher said, he himself knows, go ask him. The attendant returned to Pai Chang and said, the master says you already know. So I should come here and ask you. Thereupon, Pai Chang laughed out loud. The attendant said, A moment ago, you were crying. So why are you laughing now? Pai Chang said, My crying a moment ago is the same as my laughing now. The attendant was bewildered by Pai, Chang, Pai Chang's behavior. The next day, Matsu went into the hall to address the monks. Just when the monks had finished assembling, Pai Chang rolled up his sitting mat. Matsu got down from his chair, and Pai Cheng followed him to the abbot's room. Matsu said, Just now, I hadn't even said a word. Why did you roll up your sitting mat? Pai Chang said, Yesterday the master painfully twisted my nose. Matsu said, Is there anything special about yesterday that you've noticed? Pai Chang said, today my nose doesn't hurt anymore. Matsu said, then you really understand 
what happened yesterday. And Bai Chang bowed and left. What are those? Wild geese, wild ducks. Where'd they go? They flew away. Really? Really? Do you see what he's getting at? Do you, do, you, you, do you kind of get a sense anyway of what's going on? When he says, when he grabs his nose, when he says, they've flown away. How could they fly away? We know that we're told and taught and the realization is that all things are right here, present. No coming and going. Who are the wild geese? Who are the wild geese? Okay, so that gives you a little sense of this sort of interplay between these masters. How playful they actually were together. So let's get back to the koan. So this story of Hyakujo and the fox, we'll go back to his Japanese name, Hyakujo and the fox. This story deals with some of the trickier areas of Buddhism. Uh, karma, cause and effect, rebirth. As Western practitioners, and inheritors of Judeo-Christian thought history, we have a hard time um, wrapping our heads around some of these concepts. We can become quite skeptical. And I would say that karma has really been co-opted in our culture, this idea of karma, been assumed into the American lexicon and really misused. I've heard it used in very strange ways and very simplistic ways. Oh, that's just your karma. Almost like it's your fate. Or, even more, even worse, that's just your fault. It's your karma. So we have to be careful as practitioners that we don't fall into using or misusing these ideas. And we also have to be careful not to just throw away these ideas either as American practitioners. That they perhaps have a lot to teach us that we may not bother with otherwise. So let's look at the story in detail. It says, whenever Hyakujo delivered a talk, a certain old man was always there listening to it together with the monks. When they left the hall, he also left. And one day, though, he remained behind. 
And Kyakujo said to him, Who are you? Who are you? is the central question of Zen practice. It's really the central question of each koan. And it's central in this story as well. It's so easy because this is a folk tale to dismiss it just as a story. Just as a kind of silly thing. Part of what we have to do when we work on this case is to find ourself in the story. Discover who you are in this story. This story says whenever Hyakujo delivered a talk, a talk about Zen, the old man was there, but then he left. He left with everybody else. Why did he stay that one day? Why did, he, why did he remain one day? I mean, he'd been there probably time and time again without being noticed. There's a phrase in Zen, the readiness of time. It's not unusual for people to have a very casual relationship with practice for many years. can consist of maybe some reading, occasional sitting, you know, just kind of admiring practice from a distance. And then, for some reason, for some people, that changes and practice becomes serious. The other day, I gave a workshop to a group of high schoolers. And some people might dismiss that as well, you know, what are they going to do with Zen? But I would say that we shouldn't dismiss it because what we're doing is laying seeds, we're planting seeds. Uh, most won't practice, of course, but maybe someday those seeds will bear fruit. Most people don't practice Zen until their life has become, as they say in AA, unmanageable. In some respect, most people don't practice seriously until they've experienced enough dissatisfaction to realize that the same old strategies aren't going to help out. Going back to the same habit forces. We never know when something might strike us, where 
in Zen terms, we might say that we never know when we're going to hear something and it's going to resonate. We might hear something a hundred times before it really sinks in. Before the conditions and causes are ripe enough for it to really go deep. And then our practice can change. And so, of course, this speaks to the aspect of patience, of being patient with our practice, of not putting a time frame on practice, of letting it slow cook. So when we think about this old man coming to talk after talk, and why he stayed behind that particular day, we keep this in mind. So the old man replied to Yakujo when he asked who he was. He said, I'm not a human being. In the far distant past, in the time of Kishapa, I was the head of this monastery. Now Kishapa, for people who don't know much about Buddhist mythology, Kashapa is one of the six uh, mythic Buddhas that came before Shakyamuni Buddha. So before Shakyamuni, go back a Kalpa, and there's Kashapa. Go back another Kalpa, and there's, well, I forget. <laughs> but and a Kalpa, for people's reference point, is basically almost incalculable. Somebody actually did try to calculate it once uh, because there's an analogy, is it a me metaphor or analogy, to get a sense of the time span. And it's, if you imagined a block of granite that was a mile high, a mile wide, and a mile deep, every hundred years, an angel came down from heaven, swept its wings across the top of it. A kalpa is the amount of time it would take to erode that block. So Kashapo is the Buddha that uh, was before Shakyamuni. And it gives you a sense of time. In other words, a long, <laughs> a long time ago. And the thing is, his name was Hyakujo as well. Because during that time in China, the masters took the name of the mountain or the place where they took up residence. That's where they got their name. So Hyakujo or Paichang was actually the name of the mountain. I think there's a real beauty in this. Because it's, it really, our names are so wrapped up in our individual identities when you think about it. And so in this sense, there's less of a sense of identity. I'm the mountain. The mountain is me. And each abbot is the same as the previous abbot. So Hyakujo meets Hyakujo. 
We're all inheritors of what and who has come before us. And we don't really um, do it yet, but I hope to incorporate in our chanting the traditional ancestral line, which gives us a sense of that someday. It really acknowledges the tradition and how we're, um, that this is a lineage. It's not us simply as individuals practicing, but this teaching gets passed down from student, teacher to student, to teacher to student. And just so people know, when you take Jukai, uh, if you're a student and you sew a Raksu, which is this bib-like garment, um, you can sew one of these and you receive a name, but you also receive a folded paper uh, that you make, and it's when you unfold it, it's got the lineage chart. So it's got all uh, our lineage that traces itself all the way back to Shakyamuni, down through the ages. It's like a family tree, and it goes. It's called the bloodline, and it goes all the way down to the present. So my teacher before me, his teacher before him, her teacher, you know, all the way back. So to think of ourselves as individuals, this is the core problem. To think of ourselves as the lone man or the lone woman is a big part of why we suffer. When we work on this koan, part of what we have to do is relinquish our own individual identity to that of Hyakujo, to put ourselves in the shoes of Hyakujo, to get in the mind of each character in the koan. Actors know, how, actors know about this when they're preparing for a role, what it's like to take on the character as themselves. So, when we work on a koan, we let it go through us, you know, through and through, as much as we can, to lose ourselves in the dialogue, to merge with it. So in this case, he goes on. He says, on the occasion, a certain monk asked me, the old monk says, on a, on a certain occasion, when I was abbot, a monk asked me whether an enlightened person falls under the chain of cause and effect. In other words, does the enlightened person suffer and have karma and get drawn into the same old habit patterns or not. Does the enlightened person fall under the same old stuff that we do? And he answered... 
that he would not, the enlightened person would not. And of course, this is the classic understanding in Buddhism. And we'll get into that a little later. And because I answered like that, he said, I was reborn as a fox for 500 lifetimes. Now in Asia, the fox is regarded as kind of like a, um, it's, it's almost akin to the coyote spirit, the trickster. In fact, in Japan, there are altars to appease the fox spirit all around. It's kind of wound up with Shinto and natural religions and things. But basically, it's not a good thing. You don't want the fox creeping around because you know they're up to no good. So, so, so it's a kind of an evil spirit of sorts. So back to this question. Does an enlightened person fall under the law of cause and effect? It's an interesting question. A cause and effect, of course, is the fundamental law of physics. It's really what's meant when we say that all things are impermanent. In other words, everything changes because of causes and conditions. Everything shifts. And so we're always being exerted upon by these forces. Pushing us, pulling us. And so with this idea that we have of being a fixed self... We are led to believe that we have some sort of control. But the truth is we're constantly being changed. And we're also constantly changing others. We're constantly not only having forces exerted on us, but we're also constantly exerting force on others. And this is why, especially in Sashin practice, it's important to be mindful of your influence, of your thoughts, your actions, your words. Um, in Sashin, we live in such close quarters to each other, and so it acts as, we act as kind of ripples. So in Sushin, we attempt to, as the old phrase goes, leave no traces. To leave no traces. And yet, that's impossible. So, this process of cause and effect, of causation, it's easy to think that when one has an opening experience, when somebody has sees into the non-separation of all things, when somebody gains that kind of freedom, 
it's easy to think that because the realization is, the truth is that there is no past, that there is no future, that there is just this, it's easy to think that one is exempt or somehow above the law of cause and effect, that it doesn't apply. And this is what the Buddha taught, that nirvana or release is getting off of the wheel of cause and effect, the wheel of causation. And so that wheel should be looked at really carefully. We tend to repeat patterns in our life over and over again. This koan that will continue tomorrow, where we're leaving it is he was reborn as a fox for 500 lifetimes, this evil spirit, for saying that an enlightened person does not get off, does not, is not subject to the law of cause and effect. So what gives? That's the teaching of the Buddha, that we get off the wheel, and yet he's reborn for saying that. Why? So what we're going to do is we're going to stop in just a minute and we'll continue this story tomorrow. The best thing we can do now is to drop it and just return to our practice. For as we move into Kinhin and the next sitting period and then lunch or, or yoga, lunch, to really just do whatever is in front of you, nothing else. When you're walking, just walk. When you're doing stretching, you just stretch. Not thinking about something else, not looking and bothering yourself with all kinds of activity and mental stimulation, but just losing yourself in the practice. If you're working on move, just move. Let move stretch. Let move walk. If you're doing breath practice, just the breath. Nothing else. This is what we're doing in Sashin. Don't complicate it. Don't make it more than it is. Just practice. Nothing else. No reflection. No contemplation. No thinking. Give yourself to the schedule. Just give yourself over and over again. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs> 